free and open internet is in the crosshairs of the Republican-controlled FCC. Without net neutrality, the cable company literally has the power to decide what content you have access to and what content you don't. And there is no First Amendment defense against that because the cable company is not the government. So anything that the cable company doesn't want, I don't care what your politics are, far right, far left, purple spaghetti monster, whatever, if the cable company isn't under net neutrality and isn't required to treat all content the same, they have the power to decide anything that you can or can't see. And that is, a, as someone who teaches media law, that is a terrifying reality in today's world. Forget about all the debate we have about fake news. I'm talking about an environment where there might be no news. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Riesmandel, and I am uh, one half of your production team. Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Klein, that other half. Hope everyone's having a good day. Yes, welcome. And we want to say a special welcome to listeners of X-Ray FM in Portland, Oregon. We actually record here in Portland. We've been doing Radio Survivor for uh, over two years as a podcast, and we're very grateful to the uh, staff of X-Ray who asked if they could air the show and have done some work and, and helped us make that possible so that we are now heard on the X-Ray airwaves. Uh, we love community radio. We love college radio. We love online community radio and community-based podcasting. That's what the show is all about, and we're so glad to have the privilege to talk to you over the Portland FM airwaves. Yeah, and on the program today, we're going to be digging in to Federal Communications uh, Commission, FCC policy changes under this new Trump administration. Stay tuned. Yes, uh, we'll be talking to Dr. Christopher Terry. He is a professor of communication and communication law at the University of Minnesota. So uh, he's a friend of the show. He's on frequently, and we're really glad that he's willing to uh, take some time he's to talk to us He spent a lot week. of his efforts and time over the past decades watching the FCC, and so uh, he's got a long, a long view on what's happening now at the Federal Communications Commission. Yeah, and he's seen it from inside the ivory tower and outside on the ground because he worked in radio in Wisconsin for many years before he decided to go to school, go to grad school, and learn how to better investigate and really understand the mechanisms that really control what we hear over the airwaves, what we hear and see on the internet, and and really our, our media environment. So uh, we, we certainly encourage you to stick around for that interview. Also want to quickly give a plug for the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. They've got a conference coming up here in July, July 17th through 19th in Denver, Colorado. And they invite people both, you know, who are, who are deeply involved in community radio and other people who are interested or working at a low power FM and in other areas to attend as well. And they've gratefully extended a discount to register for listeners of Radio Survivor. There's a promo code SURVIVOR50, and that gives you a discount on your registration fee. Uh, you can learn more about the conference at nfcb.org. It's a real cool opportunity for us to share. With those yeah, and I've got a little bit of follow-up. So a story we've talked about a number of times on the show in the, in the last uh, month or so is about the Corporation for Public Broadcasting Funding. You might recall that the Trump administration, when it put forward its uh, president's budget, its president's budget, zeroed out funding for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and funding for the 
National Endowment for the Arts. So wanted to take all those things to zero. And the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, of course, funds public broadcasting. Uh, that money goes, of course, to public radio, goes to public television. Many community stations also benefit from CPB funding. Uh, it helps them distribute and acquire programming. And in particular, as, as we learned yeah. uh, from Sally Kane, who is the CEO of the NFCB. Vital to – Indian country, as she put it. Yes, it's vital to native-run stations. And those are super important because in many cases, that is the only electronic media on some reservations and in some areas. Especially, it's the only, only media that specifically serves tribal populations. When we talked about it, when we talked to our colleague Matthew Lassar, who teaches history at uh, the University of California, Santa Cruz, um, we looked at a historical perspective because this is not the first time that a president has suggested drastically cutting or zeroing out CPB funding. And so we wanted to know, should we panic? Should we press the panic button? Uh, what, what should we do? What's the likelihood of this happening? And in that discussion, I think we sort of came to the conclusion that it's not time to panic yet, that even when these uh, budgets have been proposed, Congress goes back home and finds out that people don't want to lose Big Bird or don't want to lose Thomas a Tank Engine. Even in the red states. Even in the red like states. They like their public media. They like public media because also in many red states, uh, which are often more rural and have areas that are less densely populated, sometimes public media is the only broadcast media that comes in clearly because of the infrastructure that's been built and put in place in part because of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. So we were like, don't panic. And we'd, we'd heard from some listeners who were like, wow, we really like you to cover this more. What will these cuts mean? And we, we said uh, about a week or two ago, well, we, we don't quite have the resource right now to do all of that, all of that reporting. And we're going to kind of wait to see, to see if, if, the, if this seems like that's really going to happen. And as it turns out, it looks like it's not. Uh, at least in the in the version of of the omnibus budget bill that uh, is coming out of the House, uh, CBB funding funding is basically staying static. So it looks as though, although there were alarm bells, and we should take those seriously, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting funding is probably going to stay in place. I'm sure, in part, because constituents called up their representatives and said, do not touch this, in part because some of these career politicians have seen this before and they know what they're in for. And, and you know, they don't necessarily want to have to uh, tussle with that tiger, if you will. Uh, and, and often it's uh, Big Bird is, is, a, is a tough adversary. He's a kinder, gentler adversary, but he knows he knows how to be a scrapper. Um, you don't want to get in a fight with a bird. You don't want to get into fight with Big Bird. So it does look as though that funding is going to stay put and that at least right now we don't have to sound alarm bells uh, just yet for the tribal stations that rely a lot and community radio stations which rely on CPB funding. And just as sort of as a side note, another reason why we here at Radio Survivor uh, didn't dig super deeply into it is because uh, corporate public broadcasting funding benefits relatively few community radio stations or college stations of the sort that we we care about, the ones that are run by station by students and, and tend to have community members uh, behind the uh, microphone. Um, it tends to affect public broadcasting more. And it's not that we don't care about public broadcasting, but we're very lucky that there is a great news outfit called Current at Current.org, which 
covers public broadcasting on very story. well. Yeah. And they are on the story. And you know what? We trust them. We trust them to do a good job and they have good funding to help them do that job. Uh, so I just wanted to lay that out and let people know that's, uh, that there's a, that seems to be the case that the yeah. corporation public broadcasting funding but is going to survive, but that uh, you know we should not keep our eye off the ball. Yeah, and if your hobby is to worry about what might happen to your media landscape under the Trump administration, uh, stay tuned to today's conversation. There's still plenty to worry about uh, on the media landscape, so we're not we're not out of the woods. When will we ever be out of the woods? Anyway, yeah, deep breath. <laughs> well. Let's talk with Professor Christopher Terry. He's Assistant Professor of Communication at the University of Minnesota. Joining us from Minnesota is Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota. He is a friend of the show who comes on to try and help us decode the Federal Communications Commission and... It, it's an understatement to even to say right now there's a lot to decode. Uh, thanks for joining us, Christopher. Always great to be here, guys. So <laughs> the chairman of the FCC, Ajit Pai, has in the last few weeks gone from being kind of a staid, uh, if very free market-leaning bureaucrat to becoming, I would say, nearly Trumpian – in his level of bond bask uh, for an FCC chairman. I mean, we do have to sort of say for an FCC chairman and it's kind of spinning. I think everyone's head who pays any attention to the FCC, especially people who come at it from the public interest, from the standpoint of media democracy. So uh, let's rewind and uh, take a look at, at something very much in particular here, network neutrality, chairman Pi. Uh, made a speech uh, now uh, about two weeks ago as we record here talking about how he wants to undo the open internet rules that were put in place just two years ago in 2015 by the Obama FCC under the uh, tutelage of Chairman uh, Thomas Wheeler. What was exceptional about uh, this announcement, uh, I guess, also including the fact that he wants to undo something that was just done two years ago. Well, what's notable about it is that this time the court has upheld the rules as constitutional. So these are Tom Wheeler's rules, the open internet yes. rules passed two years ago. Okay, so a bit of a quick bit of history. In 2005, under Chairman Powell, the FCC put out a set of non regulatory guidelines that sort of were uh, best practices for internet service providers to follow. Essentially, it said that you really shouldn't throttle content, you shouldn't really block it. They didn't really have the force of law. Everything is hunky-dory until Comcast begins to block user access to BitTorrent sites. It's very slow at first and then expands rather quickly and even as Comcast was telling the FCC they weren't doing this, the the techies and the tech nerds and all that crowd were very clearly demonstrating that it was happening. I went to that FCC hearing in Stanford and I saw the man speak who had been uploading Edison Real audio to BitTorrent sites. And so it's 100,000% in the public domain content that he then proved was being throttled. Right. So sh- long story short um, – FCC gives Comcast a little tiny slap on the wrist and tells them to knock it off. 
Comcast waits a grand total of three days, walks down to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and files a suit over the uh, <clears throat> over the wrist slap. Now, there were no sanctions. There was nothing. The FCC essentially just told the Comcast to knock it off. Court looks at the case. Comcast makes a really novel argument. The FCC does not have this authority. And frankly, the court didn't rule on any of the constitutionality of it. It says, yeah, straight up. The 1996 Telecommunications Act governs internet regulation in the United States. There's nothing specific in there about regulating content practices. It's You don't have this power, and they throw it out. FCC retreats, licks its wounds, and comes up with a second set of formalized net neutrality principles. And the ink isn't even dry on those before Verizon goes to court to challenge those. And case goes to the D.C. Circuit again, and the D.C. Circuit says, as it said in the Comcast decision a couple years earlier, that you simply do not have this authority. But what's interesting about the Verizon decision, and has not really been talked a lot about in the press this week, is what the court told the FCC in Verizon was, you have a way to do this. You have to reclassify broadband. You have to reclassify it as a common carrier under Title II. And if you want to do that, net neutrality principles will be legitimate. But if not, you don't have any other jurisdictional authority to do it. It'll, you can come here 100 times. You're going to get the same answer every time. Common carrier under Title II means like a telephone. You, tr- you treat every piece of information this side. You're just a carrier. You're just a distributor. You just the you own and control the wires. The internet you is a utility. It's not yeah. a, um, that's a... That's an oversimplification, but yes. So the FCC hems and haws. They know they need this. And then there's the uh, demonstration in front of Tom Wheeler's house that sort of changes the pace of this. That coupled with John Oliver's show, which sort of mobilized people, results in 4 million public comments coming in on the net neutrality docket. And the FCC, in a split party vote, votes 3 to 2 to reclassify broadband under Title II, Section 706. And then, of course, we had another case. This case, again, goes to the D.C. Circuit. But now... The so a case F- challenging those open internet rules that the right. uh, Democratic FCC yeah. put into this place. This is all during Obama's uh, administration. This is all during Obama administration now. Now, um, that case is U.S. Telecom v. FCC. So it's essentially the same group of parties each time, but there's a diff- different lead plaintiff in each case. This time, the court says, well, we don't necessarily agree with everything about what you've done here, but you did what we said was okay. You've reclassified broadband under Title II as a common carrier. These rules are okay. Um, Ajit Pai uh, was a vocal critic of the rules when they were being debated. He was a vocal critic of the rules when they were being uh, voted on. And he was a vocal critic of the rules during the time between when they were voted on and when he became FCC chairman. He's on the FCC commission at that point. Yeah, for the listeners very, who aren't familiar with his career, there's a very famous picture of him holding a copy of the rules before they were released, and he had some snarky comment about how I get to see the rules, but you don't, and they're bad or something. I don't remember exactly how he phrased it, but that said, what is really it's interesting about here. what happened is that on the same week that the FCC made its big play to start the process to repeal Title II 
uh, net neutrality protections. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeal turned down an end bank review of the rules and declared them to be just fine. And that means the unbank means that uh, that would have been, been appealing it to the full D.C. Circuit Court. The first uh, right. decision was was like three justices, and then the full court is more justices, and that I actually don't know how many. How many is it? It's the the panel. And it's a panel. panel of justices. Just just in case, what's at stake here is net neutrality. We're still we're yeah. still we're still okay get, going back and forth. So what you have is a commission who is. I mean, driving full speed ahead, race car style, to repeal a rule that's been ruled constitutional not once but twice. And you had a major push this week by a lot of telecom influencers and a lot of the lobby and PR crowd who favors the telecom industry trying to push this idea that telecommunic- that net neutrality is some sort of censorship. But what's interesting about that is that the court actually addressed that in the decision that came out earlier this week. And it says there is no First Amendment rule that protects ISPs from having to uh, engage in net neutrality with user content. So the FCC is actually arguing against its own policy, saying that it's unconstitutional, even in the face of a court that's saying it's constitutional. Remember those discussions we've had about the Prometheus case? This is more confusing. <laughs> and and just uh, uh, so we don't have to we, – we won't get right into it, but it's a case in which uh, the Prometheus Radio Project challenged FCC ownership rules uh, and which the FCC has been back and forth with the Third Circuit Court of Appeals about them so many times over the course of more than a decade that it just seems to be turning into an M.C. Escher painting. And and for listeners who are curious about those conversations, you can check out the show notes at radiosurvivor.com for this episode of the podcast. And we'll link we'll link to those previous conversations with Christopher Terry about uh, the FCC. So this is getting uh, – yeah, it's turning in on itself again. And so the question is, why is Commissioner Pai so hell-bent – to overturn network neutrality provisions. What about those provisions scares him so much? I don't know that it scares him. It scares the ISPs a lot. And he's very much in favor of an industry-centric competition regulation approach. And, you know, it's it's essentially the rebirth of Mark Fowler. We're going to let economics work all these problems out. And who's and Mark Fowler? Take- he was FCC chairman under Reagan, and he started the deregulatory process that has brought us to the horrors of the regulatory state today. But there was no internet back then, Dr. Christopher Terry. I'm aware of that, but the philosophy was there. The philosophy takes regulation and sets it aside in favor of deregulation and lets the marketplace sort out problems that regulation has usually is uh, put in charge of. So in that era, it wasn't the internet that was impacted, but media was ownership. Broadcasting, yeah. specifically. Yeah. And so at this point, what does the likes of Comcast or Verizon, uh, as two players who are internet service providers, why do they oppose network neutrality? Network neutrality on its face sounds like 
it's a good thing, right? It means that all information is equal. That uh, for me as a consumer, whether I'm going to be watching YouTube or getting something from from Google or Amazon I, Prime, or I'm I'm watching Amazon Prime, or I'm going out and listening to a community radio station that's you know on the other side of the world, or I want to read a a, a small uh, you know volunteer run right wing news website. They're all or, treated or equal. Watch their video or watch their video stream. They're all treated equally, right? What? Why would Verizon or, or Comcast or AT and T oppose this? Well, there's two reasons. One, they want to be able to limit people who use lots of bandwidth. Um, that's part of it. But net neutrality is more complicated than that. You have to put the ISPs into the context of the business that they're in. Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, and most of the other providers have services that compete with online services like Netflix, like Hulu. And what they want to be able to do is direct you to their content, their services over the content of companies that don't have the infrastructure to deliver it. So take two examples. Take Netflix, for example. Netflix operates online, but it needs internet infrastructure to deliver content from the source to you at home. Comcast doesn't like Netflix to come across that line, neither does Verizon, because it eats up a lot of bandwidth. Video eats up a ton of bandwidth. Streaming video is incredible uh, in how much it eats up. There's some some calculations say Netflix eats up 35 to 40% of the bandwidth in the United States at any given time. That's because we like it so much. Yeah, but that's the point, is that you like that. When Comcast has video delivery services, it itself would like to provide for you. And it would like to be able to favor its own services, i.e. make more money through the ISP service that it's providing you. Yeah, but Netflix is cheaper than Comcast when it comes to content. As a right. consumer. So, so, but let me play devil's advocate then, right? The devil's advocate would say, well, you know, Comcast paid to put those lines on uh, down in the ground and up on the poles. Uh, they paid for all that infrastructure. They, they made serious employees capital who do that investment. Work. Right. Union employees in many cities did that work. Why shouldn't they be able to benefit from, from that work that they put in, all that capital investment in infrastructure? Because it's more complicated than that. What you're doing is creating an environment where a non-state actor gets to decide what content you have and at what speed. Well, Netflix can just go start digging uh, digging trenches and putting yeah. in putting in fiber, right? That's not going to happen. <laughs> Let's be why, honest. Why isn't it, it going to happen, though? I mean, I well, think that that's, I'm trying to pull at that argument. They don't have the resources to do that. Um, you know, the ISPs have benefited from the fact that they were for the most part, the cable monopolies from the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s. And they had a heads up, they had a head start and essentially an anti-competitive advantage over any of the new edge providers that are out there. Who so, gave them that yeah. advantage? How did they get that advantage? Well, because they're the leftovers from the cable franchises. The back in the so back in the 70s. Cable franchises were regulated as one to a city. Cable franchise had a deal with its local environment, the local municipality, and it essentially had a monopoly to deliver cable services. That's more or less still in effect in most places in the United States. 
where you see competition is not necessarily in two cable providers, but a cable provider and then a fiber provider like AT&T or cable and satellite providers. But in most places, there's really only one cable broadband service, and that is a legacy of the people who own the cable system. Yeah, it's one of the most dominant monopolies that uh, impact our lives these days in the United and States. And it's, it's a legacy of nothing more than history, right? I mean, in what you have now is you have companies that deliver content online that don't have any internet infrastructure to deliver it, competing with companies that have both. They have the internet infrastructure as well as the content. And of course, we've been talking about entertainment products, but we also want to underline, um, you know, more more nutritious news products that that some people, uh, some people like me, really value. So well, I'll, I'll throw like a Democracy Now stream into the mix, or uh, the Young Turks uh, YouTube channel into the mix, and talk about. Uh, the value of that having as much of an access to the pipelines as uh, as the well, latest Marvel movie from Comcast. Without net neutrality, the cable company literally has the power to decide what content you have access to and what content you don't. And there is no First Amendment defense against that because the cable company is not the government. So anything that the cable company doesn't want, I don't care what your politics are, far right, far left, purple spaghetti monster, whatever, if the cable company isn't under net neutrality and isn't required to treat all content the same, they have the power to decide anything that you can or can't see. And that is, as someone who teaches media law, that is a terrifying reality in today's world. Forget about all the debate we have about fake news. I'm talking about an environment where there might be no news. Right. And that's, that, that's, I mean, I, that's sort of pants on fire running around chicken little style, but that's, that's what we're talking about here. That's the reality of this situation is that without these protections, there's no protections and no protections isn't going to work out. And yet at the same time, the, the the telecom industry and and apparently Chairman Pai, uh, his his Republican uh, compatriot on the commission, uh, O'Reilly, uh, they think the market will will work this out. The market will provide some level of protection because they are, I mean, sort of saying, uh, look, there's no problem. Look, you've been getting all the stuff. You've been getting your your Young Turks. You you've been getting your Infowars. Uh, we haven't been blocking it. Your so so what's the deal? Yeah, why 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 are we fixing a problem that doesn't exist? Well, that's a disingenuous argument because Verizon themselves said in the Verizon case that if these rules weren't at least hypothetical or at least being debated, they would have already started blocking content. Really? So what would they have blocked? Did they say? Were they at all specific no, about that? <laughs> no, they just said that if we were in a position, you know, the thing that keeps us from blocking the content is the concern that the rule will actually be enforced. That's what they said in the Verizon case. And in terms of, com- I mean, historically, this all starts over Comcast deciding what content, legitimate content or otherwise, users were trying to access and, and it they was were even under out- a republican regime it was under right. a republican fcc at that time right the original rules for net neutrality are republican rules even michael powell who's like the biggest cable lobbyist in the history of cable lobbyists recognized that there was a need for some sort of basic control now he wanted to do it without formal regulation he wanted to do it just as a sort of advisory set of guidelines 
But even Michael Powell, king of deregulation and ownership consolidation in media, recognized that this would become a problem. And he recognized that back in 2005. Here we are, 2017, and we're still having the same debate because we just haven't tried it enough times. It'll work out this time if we just allow the marketplace to go. I would suggest that if we go back and look at when we've left things to the marketplace in the media environment, we don't have a super good track record of getting a good public interest result out of that. Three examples. <clears throat> Deregulation in the 1980s reduced the amount of informational programming. It uh, certainly changed the balance of the types of informational programming that were available. On television. Sec on television and on radio. Mm, right. And then – I don't even think about radio because of my generation's uh, – You know, it's it already had started to just turn, turn dark. Example number two – the 1996 Telecommunication Act and ownership consolidation in radio. If you want to know how that worked out, maybe you can go get the stock report from Clear Channel as it uh, became iHeartMedia, and that was recently announced that they are not going to be able to make their bond payment at the end of this year for the debt they incurred during the consolidation, which followed the implementation of the 1996 Telecommunications Act. So they, they bought up radio, they kind of... Uh they leveraged it, homogenized loans. the the landscape across the United States, so there's less local programming, and now they're not even uh, doing so well as a company. Yeah, they're not going to make it. They may not make it through the year. I mean, that's a, a financial reality. And and the original <laughs> argument to allow them to buy up all those stations was that it was going to improve service. Yeah. yeah, it would be efficient. It would improve efficiency. And and example three is the one that we're talking about right now. We left it to the marketplace to ensure that there would be competition in broadband. And here we are. We're 3,200 some odd days into the national broadband plan. There are many places in the United States where there's only one broadband provider. If you don't like who you have, you're essentially out of luck. Um, and in that reality, even where there is competition, um, you don't have very much competition a but duopoly, also usually. a duopoly and in the rare example where there's actually three providers the quality of service is actually so bad between the that the competition hasn't created anything better but on top of that leaving it to the marketplace has left about 25 to 30 percent of the united states without hardwired broadband available in their area i'm from wisconsin i live in minnesota now but, you know, in both states where there's reasonably good infrastructure in the cities, there's massive rural areas not too far away where there's no Internet provider at all. Well, even cellular service is bad at that point. And that's what we left to the marketplace. We're 21 years into that plan. And, you know, that's what we're talking about now. Well, it just doesn't work. Chairman Pai, in his speech announcing his plan to undo network neutrality, to undo the open internet rules, specifically called out redlining and said that that as a result of the of network neutrality provisions, that it was actually increasing redlining, meaning that particularly poor neighborhoods were being left out of internet service, that they were not getting the build out and that um, over the course of the last two years, uh, infrastructure build out has been inhibited 
by these net neutrality rules. Uh, how, how can this be the case that, we, that, that, we've, that, that these net neutrality rules, which have been in place for two years, have, have inhibited rollout so much when we have sort of haven't seen this rollout in the last 20 well, I'm not even sure how to sort that argument out. <laughs> if you leave it to the marketplace, you're going to put infrastructure resources where people can afford to pay the overpriced broadband rates that the people who are putting the infrastructure in want to charge. So if there's anything that's inhibited um, broadband deployment in the United States, it's a continued reliance on the idea that the marketplace will sort of sort out these problems. Remember, Tom Wheeler wasn't exactly the screaming public interest type, uh, say, Newton Minow or uh, <clears throat> James Lawrence Fly were. Yeah, Tom Wheeler, FCC again, history. is uh, Barack Obama's FCC chairman. Right. I mean, he was a strong proponent of a competition-based approach. He just kind of buckled under the public pressure to put in net neutrality provisions as Title II. He didn't want to do that. I mean, that was very, very clear. But the weight of the public comments at the time weighed heavily on his decision. And I think it would have been really hard for the FCC to uphold any rule they would have passed under the first set of reviews on on this Title II system, given the number of public, uh, com- public comments in favor of net neutrality principles. But... Ajip Pai has said that he doesn't think that those comments amount to as much as some empirical evidence that they're trying to cook up that says net neutrality somehow inhibits broadband deployment. There's That's a false premise. That's a false connection. And there's very little evidence that suggests there's any kind of relationship between those two things. And one of the arguments uh, you sort of alluded to at the start of our conversation, right? You said that the, the the telecom lobbyists are sort of lining up to say that network neutrality is actually tantamount to censorship. And in fact, um, in in his talk, uh, in the speech he, uh, that Ajit Pai gave to announce his intentions to overturn network neutrality, he pretty much said network neutrality advocates just simply want to con- turn over control of the internet to the government. They just essentially want want the government to be, and, and, and he was sort of implied be a, be a censor of of the uh, of the internet. Um, I mean, is that the case? Well, actually, I find that argument really interesting because what net neutrality actually does is it opens up access to content rather than restrict it. Under net neutrality, all content has to be treated, all legal content, excuse me, has to be treated the same. So the government won't be in the process of censoring content. They're in the business of actually protecting the open pathway to ensure that you as the consumer have access to content that you want. So I don't understand the censorship argument. I actually, you guys follow me on Twitter, you know, I actually brought this up this week that um, there doesn't, I don't understand how it can be censorship if what the government is doing is protecting all content as the same. I mean, uh, the First Amendment doesn't even protect all speech the same, but this would. As I I understand it, I mean, the way that we talked about it last week on the on the program uh, Ajit Pai was sort of throwing down the gauntlet in a form of a uh, culture war that that seems more Trumpian. Yes, than, red baiting, uh, red one baitings, would call it, yeah. by, by uh, sort of bringing into the argument some mostly unrelated comments by uh, 
Free Press, the uh, media democracy organization, their co-founder, uh, Robert McChesney, had made about other things uh, nearly a sure. decade ago. Which is, is crafty. I to mean, kind if, of sort of if, uh, blur the picture a little bit in, in a sort of are, are not, Trumpian way. Yeah, if the arguments are not succeeding with on the merits of the facts, why not, why not go low? Because yeah. that seems to be working. It these seems days to me that they're really they're looking to float this censorship argument uh, now. It seems like these are like trial balloons going up. What, did you have the same sense? Well, the PR war was certainly in effect this over the past week or so. Um, the day that the announcement was made, uh, you know, all the feeds, all the stories, everything that I follow was just bombarded with essentially this message of censorship, that this is censorship. But it that doesn't pass the logical test. So with that called out, now they're sort of leaning on this idea that it's impeding broadband deployment. Um, I don't think the empirical evidence is there. In fact, you, you cite Free Press. Free Press came out with a set of data this week that showed that actually after the net neutrality rules were in place, there were increases in broadband deployment and resources being put into broadband deployment. So, I mean, part of the argument here is that the FCC is arguing against a policy, which in very rare terms, the courts have decided is perfectly acceptable. And it wants to do that because it doesn't like the effect it's going to have on the telecommunications providers. So the next step then is that there has to be a rulemaking, right? I mean, so the FCC, even even under a Trump administration, has uh, a set of procedures it has to go through in order to change policy. Correct. Correct. So that so there there are new rules that have been written are being written that will be floated, and then they will have to be uh, public content again, right? Public comment right. again. Um, there's a copy of the NPRM floating around already. Um, I haven't digested all of it yet, but it's pretty much the public arguments that they've been making. That's the rulemaking, the NPRM. It's yeah. the proposed new rules. It is the proposed new rules. And the sort of the overriding suggestion is that everything will just be better if we just do it. Sort of a clap louder approach to regulation, <laughs> if you will. Sounds familiar given uh, what's happened uh, with regard to healthcare in the House this week. <laughs> yes, uh, very, very similar. It's hard to keep up with all the things that are happening some days. It, it's a good thing that my focus is primarily on the FCC. And and the question I, I wonder about and maybe worry about is, you know, once again, there'll be an opportunity for public comment is will, will there be the opportunity? Will will we be able to people interested in the public interest be able to motivate another 4 million public comments, people coming out to really speak out on something which is otherwise sort of arcane uh, policy. Yeah. Well, the NPRM hasn't been formally adopted and Tim Wu, who's the man who coined the phrase net neutrality has said there's over 30,000 public comments in the docket already. And Tim Wu was a professor at Columbia university. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Correct. Ran I for, think that ran for office recently. Yes, um, politics. He uh, he stated, I think it was last night. I saw um, some discussion that there's already thirty thousand some odd comments in there. What's what's interesting about net neutrality and why there will be a big public push to get more public comments in is that you have a lot of big players going up against the ISPs, companies like Google, 
companies like Amazon, companies like Yahoo, companies like um, well, Yahoo is now. I, 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 I meant I said YouTube. I meant YouTube. <laughs> I said Yahoo. I meant um, Netflix. These are companies that rely on internet infrastructure to do business. So even somebody like Facebook has to rely on net neutrality to make sure that they can still get content to the consumer. Yeah, they're they're big so, into video this year, and yeah. uh, they need they need some uh, clean pipes to get us all that stream. But but that's an important part of this is that there are players out there who you would sort of think as as industry players, but they're industry players who have a stake in this fight. And it's very likely that they have the resources and the content systems to generate quite a bit of interest in this when they decide to pull the trigger. I think the analogy to this, and although a few people criticize me for making this point this week, is when the SOPA copyright bill was being right. debated, there was the blackout protest back in January of was that 2011, and right. that was you know that instantly motivated. Uh, Lots and lots of people to contact their congressman, and that bill died on the floor right. of the house. All the websites uh, that we, all the websites on the on the internet that are popular, um, uh, blacked themselves out and and asked their uh, asked the people visiting those sites to to communicate with Congress. Right, and I think you'll see something on that order again uh, this time. Fascinating. Well, we will definitely uh, stay tuned to that, uh, and and just I always like to remind Radio Survivor listeners why we why we pay attention to network neutrality. And I think in this conversation, it probably has become relatively clear. But uh, radio, while it doesn't take the same bandwidth as video, and community media, and community media of all kinds will be affected. And increasingly, as we've advocated and talked about on this show, we don't you know radio stations are doing video, uh, public access TV stations are doing podcasting. They're coming together all around community media and one of the things that they share in common regardless of the medium they use is bandwidth and certainly uh you know community media does not have the lobbying power of a verizon and maybe in this instance uh the, their interests and the interests of google will be coincident and they can and they'll be able to work together but that's why we covered here on on radio survivor uh-huh. I think one of the most important things the FCC can do to promote local content, we've talked about this before, is to provide local, uh, to provide low-cost, subsidized broadband access to smaller providers. LPFMs, for example, could really benefit from low, low-cost, high-speed broadband because it would help them have access to alternative programming that they could run. Low-power FM stations are, are lots of new community radio stations all around the country, including think how much, the one you're listening to. Think about the one, how much of benefit that would be to a smaller provider like that if they could have low-cost, subsidized broadband for program delivery and to receive programs to be re-aired. Right, because right. not all LPFMs are on the internet. Right. So, I mean, that would be an incredible resource. I'd love to see the FCC dedicate some resources towards those type of goals, but it's going to be a long four years, I think. It's my uh, prediction. Well, let's shift focus to, again, something which you, you sort of mentioned in passing earlier in our conversation, um, and you mentioned the sort of decline of clear channel, iHeartMedia, iHeartRadio, as it's now called. Uh, and you said that uh, basically they're not able to make their debt payments. 
It was announced uh, in the last 10 days or so that announced to its investors that Clear Channel was the legacy of Clear Channel, iHeartMedia, was not likely to have the cash on hand to make a bond payment. As I understand it, they need 24, 24 billion in cash uh, to make these bonds stay uh, legit. And they obviously don't have that amount of money. I have it in my couch. If I just uh, look underneath yeah. the cushions, I think I think it's there. From the last I time think, uh, the board the, directors was over for beers. Yeah, I think uh, they they might even take a couch shakedown at this point. <laughs> um, it's a. I mean, as someone who loves radio, I mean, I I fundamentally love radio. I started in radio. I worked for Clear Channel for a while. Um, I hate to see a company potentially going down. I'm afraid of what could possibly happen in the, uh, in the wake of that. But at the same time, as somebody who studies regulation and who is, you know, very, one of the very loud advocates against ownership consolidation, I think what we're seeing here is ideology meeting reality at 60 miles an hour on the highway. And that head on collision has been pretty rough. Um, we've kept, kept the wheels spinning here for quite a while beyond sort of the original lifespan of these deals, but the kind of train wreck that we're looking at with iHeartMedia is the basic philosophy that we're talking about with all of these other things, net neutrality, the getting rid of it, the philosophy behind that has a lot to do with the same type of philosophy that led to the creation of companies like Clear Channel. Right, the elimination of a national ownership cap on radio, followed by a great loosening of the ownership cap in local markets, uh, allowing uh, a company like Clear Channel to own effectively as many stations as it can gobble up, only with the only real barrier being either access to capital or uh, having already bought up everything it could buy up in any given market. Right. We're on the line with Dr. Christopher Terry, who's assistant professor of media law at University of Minnesota. University of Minnesota. You're listening to Radio Survivor. I encourage listeners, if they want to hear uh, Christopher's uh, lived experience working at a radio station that, uh, that, that, that was impacted by FCC regulation and, and uh, uh, demolishing local radio in the, in the country, to, to check out the show notes at radiosurvivor.com for this episode. Uh, and listen to previous interviews where we dug into that, where we we got to hear uh, your story uh, on that on that time. Yeah, it was a it was a amazing uh, to live through that, but it's more amazing to be a regulator or a regulatory expert now, <laughs> oh. who's looking at it sort of that back through that prism of having been there when it happened. And so, what can happen here? So we're talking about. The U.S.'s largest radio company it owns radio stations in just about every major market, if not most markets, period, um, controlling much of what most people hear on the radio is on the verge of, of, of not just bankruptcy, but really insolvency. Right. What what is at risk here? It seems like this is something people should be talking about. Um, I mean, I think if if all of a sudden it turned out that Comcast, Universal, NBC were on the on the verge of insolvency, there'd be a lot of discussion. And yet, really, it's it, there doesn't seem to be a lot of discussion about what's happening with Clear Channel uh, on well, Radio. 
I think part of the part of the story on that is that this has been a long time coming, and it's just the chickens have finally come home to roost on this point. But um, I agree. In terms of what's going to happen, I don't know. Um, I'm I'm nervous about what will happen to the radio industry. Remember, it's bigger than just the radio stations they own. iHeartRadio or iHeartMedia still delivers lots of content to radio stations that they don't own. Hmm. And if the company folds, there's going to be a lot of radio stations out there that don't have a ready source of content on hand. I just, I don't know how the chips would fall. Um, you know, this is, as you point out, it's a little bigger than bankruptcy at this point. If we were just talking about bankruptcy, this isn't really a conversation. What we're talking about here is a company that literally cannot pay to keep the lights on anymore. It seems to me that like a total wholesale shutdown is unlikely. Uh, but what I, I guess I would, I would be more likely to predict would be a fire sale, right? Breaking up the company, trying to sell off stations, taking more profitable units like Premier Radio Networks, which is their program syndicator, which, which they syndicates Rush Limbaugh, um, and taking those and selling them off, uh, in, in pieces to other companies. But of course, the question is, is who wants to buy them? Well, I mean, there's still some solvent radio companies out there that would be interested in these things. But, you know, th- there's a belief that video distribution is the future. And lots of companies are putting resources into video distribution. I don't know. Uh, you used the term fire sale. That was the term I was about to mutter there. Um, but we don't have any idea what that would look like. I mean, the FCC would want to keep those stations on the air, but. I don't, you know, we've never had a pre- we never had a failure in media of this scale, so I just don't know. I mean, it'll uh, from a conceptual standard, I'd like to see it happen just to, you know, watch it and study it. But from a practical standard, I'm very nervous about what it means in real terms. And again, as we wrap up here, Christopher Terry, what we're talking about is, um, gosh, it's uh, I hate to use the metaphor of uh, the melting of like the Antarctic ice, <laughs> but it really does seem like the uh, it's a de- media climate change, a destructive huh? climax to a decades long trend that was put in motion. How? By the 1996 telecommunications act, which did, uh, allowed for massive consolidation on a national and local scale in radio and to a lesser degree in television. In the name of uh, uh, getting rid of regulation to make room for uh, economics, corporate, corporate profits, which is the same argument they're making again with net neutrality. Now, now somewhere right. on Twitter right now, someone is writing something like, well, who cares? Reason why radio is dying, the reason why iHeart radio is dying it's because radio is dead anyway ha ha you know make troll face here you know that essentially your radio sucks you know videos where it's at um it was gonna die anyway so the fact that it's dying now is more a factor of obsolescence than it is some than it is because of 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 competition or lack of competition well, Ajit Pai himself would disagree with that. He's done a lot to, you know, the sort of the backhanded compliment I can give him <laughs> is that he he has done a lot to try and keep the radio industry afloat. Um, I haven't agreed with his approach necessarily, but his intent is is well intended. 
Um, you know, among the things more recently that he's done that's been a little controversial and we can talk about on a future show is uh, allowing AM stations to use translators to carry their signal on FM stations. And I mean, that's, that's a really interesting idea. I don't think the approach that the commission's taking on that is the most solid approach. But the point is, is that the FCC recognizes that radio still has a very significant part to play in our media infrastructure. And uh, they're not going to let it die just to let it die. And the idea that it's dead might be true in some places, but there's lots of places in the United States where the internet isn't dominant. And people who live in big cities who are listening to this podcast might not understand that. But there's a lot of places where radio and over-the-air broadcast television are still really, really important outlets for access to information, news, and political affairs. Yeah, it's still the most used audio service in the country. AM right. and FM radio, and especially when you when you talk about the car, where many people spend much of their time, uh, it's it's dominant by an even greater proportion. Right. So, uh, <sighs> Professor Christopher Terry, before we wrap up here, maybe you can quickly say to anyone listening, whether listening on the radio, listening as a podcast, who who listens to radio at least part of the time, who cares a little bit about radio. Why they should care about like Clear Channel, iHeartRadio, which, which you know, in many cases for folks who love community radio, public radio, or, or, or college radio is like sort of the big evil giant. Why, why should they care? Sympathy for the devil. Well, I, that's actually a great metaphor. Um, you don't want to see uh, the radio industry take a hit on the scale that Clear Channel or iHeartMedia, whatever, whatever we're calling it these days, uh, could deliver. Um, because we don't really have precedent for what happens after the hit comes. Um, Clear Channel has been a company of questionable uh, business approach since it was driven into existence by the Telecommunications Act, but its loss will affect the current industry substantially. I don't want to say it was too big to fail. That's not true, obviously. But what we have is the potential for another earth-shaking round of need for consolidation. This FCC will respond to this problem by saying, well, we just didn't let the industry consolidate enough and very likely pass or try to put into effect a new round of consolidation to eat up those properties and consolidate radio even more. So you want a simple answer. You just don't want to see what will happen next if Clear Channel flares. So if one uh, thinks of the metaphor, a rising tide lifts all boats, you might say that a, a lowering tide beaches all whales. Huh. That's an interesting metaphor. I hadn't thought about it like that, but uh, <laughs> I, that's a good one. I saw the giant Titanic tanker ship of Clear Channel going down and sucking all the rowboats down with it. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody gets saved. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio would have just had to stay up on the bow of the boat there when he went down this time. Top of the world. Yeah. Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with us. And uh, certainly Anytime. we look forward to speaking with you again soon because uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll need your expert analysis on the next moves of this FCC. Well, it's going to be a busy year, so you've got the number. <laughs> Thanks right, a lot, man. Talk to you soon. Dr. Christopher Terry studies media law at the University of Minnesota. We're always grateful for uh, Chris Terry to come on and, and share his knowledge and his uh, research with us. And uh, we can highly recommend, if you want to really keep up to the minute, uh, follow him on Twitter. 
His Twitter account is at Christopher Terr, T-E-R-R. We'll put that in our show notes. If you go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast, uh, you'll see links to a lot of things we've talked about. You heard us refer to it in the middle of the interview. That'll help you find uh, background if you if you want to dig deep and, yeah. and learn more or if you just want to find previous episodes of the show. Yeah, case by case, interview by interview with Christopher Terry, we've sort of built up a real body of uh, knowledge about you know, each ep- each time we talk to him, he he'll he'll reference backwards to that other conversation where we may have spent thirty five minutes to an hour on that one topic. And so, I really recommend uh, if you want to become more of an expert in the FCC and the history of it, uh, you can check out those episodes of the podcast. And we'd love to hear from you if you have any questions uh, that we might be able to help answer that you have about our media environment or a radio. Uh, and we can help maybe go find a great expert interview and, and bring them on board uh, here on the show. Send us an email to podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Also, if you have any comments uh, of any sort, uh, we'd love to hear from you. And, you know, we take recordings. Not a lot of people have taken us up on the offer yet. But if you just want to record something on like the voice memo app on your phone, and just send it off by email to us. Uh, we'd be glad to share your comments uh, with the Radio Survivor audience. To the best of our ability, we'd love for this to be an interactive show. And uh, the easiest way is by email, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And, of course, you can go to radiosurvivor.com, not just for the show, but also for constantly updated articles about community radio, our media environment, college radio, and also fun stuff. Not to mention fun things about what, the culture of radio. Six years worth of uh, comprehensive coverage of the landscape? No, going on to eight. Eight years. Going on to eight years uh Almost pretty soon. I think June. I a think lot, June is our of, anniversary. A lot of uh, digital ink spilled in the service of covering community radio, college radio, and uh, the non-commercial goodness on the internet. So, Also, we are a listener and reader-supported service. So if you can help us out, we'd love it if you would. You can go to radiosurvivor.com slash support to learn how you can do that. Well... I think, uh, boy, my head is still reeling, uh, full of information from uh, Chris Terry. So I really appreciate him coming in and his sharp take on on what's going on with the radio industry and and our internet. Yeah. Uh, We have to say goodbye like it's a radio show, Paul. My name is Eric Klein. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. I'm I'm a co-host of Radio Survivor, and I'm here with my friend Paul Reismandel. Thank you so much for taking some time to spend with us.